Hi, and welcome to the Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Joe Hellerstein. And I'm Jeffrey Hare. We'll also be joined by our Trifactus CEO, Adam Wilson. Hey, Jeff. Today on the podcast, we will welcome DJ Patil, one of the most influential data scientists in the world. DJ has been a friend and an advisor to us at Trifacta since our early days, and someone who has tirelessly beat the drum for better tools for data transformation. Now, DJ's resume is rock star impressive, though like many rock stars, he always likes to start with his humble beginnings as a, shall we say, less than stellar performer in high school. His Wikipedia page says something about hijinks, and maybe we can get into that later. But as of this moment, DJ is a board member for Devoted Health, a senior fellow at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School, and an advisor to Venrock Partners. Now, prior to all that, and perhaps most famously, Dr. Patil was appointed by President Obama to be the first U.S. chief data scientist, where his efforts led to the establishment of nearly 40 chief data officer roles across the federal government. And prior to that, and I'm skipping a successful startup company and some other odds and ends at major venture capital firms, DJ led a team at LinkedIn that pretty much defined what we now call data science. Uh, so more on that soon, I hope. Uh, anyway, we could probably spend an entire episode of the Data Wranglers on DJ's bio, but maybe we should just talk to him instead. Welcome, DJ. Hey, thanks for having me here. It's always good to connect. Sadly, we have to do it virtually, but uh, at least we get to do it. Just to get off the ground, you know, we said it earlier, a lot of folks regard you as one of the most influential data scientists in the world. How did you get started, hijinks and everything else, as much as you care to uh, introduce them? Um, what were the early days of data science like? I think that's probably more relevant for our audience. Yeah, you know, I, I guess uh, it's weird to me to hear like being the most influential because I, I think at the end of the day, what my real role has been honestly here has been to help give voice to the community, to try to give us space to let people do what they want to do. You know, I, I think I get honestly way too much credit for, for a lot of the things people look at LinkedIn or these other things and they forget that like, there's a whole team like Monica Rigatti was like LinkedIn would not be there without her or Jonathan Goldman or Shirley Zhu or, or Steve Stegman and, you know, Chris Riccamini and Jay Kreps went on to go do Kafka with Neha and Arkaday and Jen Rao and all these people. Like, it's a team. It's a team effort. And I think that's really the thing that I, I guess I got good at was helping us kind of give us space to do these things. That that training, honestly, that, that came together, I think I got from early days in academia you know, I wasn't the best student off the bat. Like I was actually a pretty terrible student, mostly because of my math grades. I, I, you know, most people think I went to an elite school. I luckily had an amazing junior college, a, a community college, uh, De Anza Junior College in Cupertino and, and just transformed my life. And one of the things I found in academia that was really special is, is that if you can work in academia in what I think is a more constructive way, making it a team aspect, you can do a lot of really much more cool projects. So was I the best person at doing crazy integrals or something? No, there was somebody else doing that. Is there another person that could do, you know, another particular part of the, you know, I don't know, like some of the writing or the, the grant writing or all these other pieces, like that collective effort is what comes together. The other portion that I found what really is data science is that we often sit at the intersection of weird spots. For me, that was nonlinear dynamics and chaos theory. So am I a mathematician? Am I a physicist? Am I a meteorologist? Am I an oceanographer? Well, why does it matter? We define our lives by the building in which we spend our time in rather than the problem sets we want to work on. And we've seen this like over time, it's like, well, if you want to work on biochemistry, why did we need to set up a new department? It's because we didn't know any other way. And so I think data science and the problems that I came to were ones that were on the interdisciplinary nature, whether that was weather forecasting or working on counter, countering terrorism. But then even in consumer internet at LinkedIn and places, it was like, are you an engineer? Are you a product manager? Are you like, what are you? And we're like, we are 
all of them. <laughs> and if you give us space, then we can actually do our job. So my initial conversations with, with Reid Hoffman, who's the founder of LinkedIn, was like, why don't you give us space where we are one of the key primary owners of LinkedIn. We own major portions of the real estate. We have engineering teams. We have product. We have all these things. And hold us accountable the same way. And let's see what happens. And what happened? Well, we turned out some of the highest revenue functions. We brought the greatest engagement. We brought all these things to life through the use of data, not just as marketing and advertising, but through actual real utility. So to me, it's that holding space. And that's been the theme for me, even in the, in the government work or anything, honestly. Great. So you brought up the government work. And I know in February 2015, the White House announced you as the first U.S. chief data scientist. So I'm wondering if you'd uh, share your you know, recollections with us. You know, what was the most memorable part of that role for you? Huh. I mean, there's so many that, that stand out. You know, the, on any given day in the White House, it's a day of laughter, tears, like the whole thing. Honestly, it's, it's a whole thing there, you know, some of the most special moments are some of the smallest ones. Like, you know, I remember one time being really laid out at night coming out of the gates and there was a bunch of kids there just visiting and being on the outside of the gate. And I was just, we were just chatting with them and they were stunned to meet somebody who worked on the other side of the building and seeing that joy of what that building represents, what it represents to, to, to people to know that somebody is actually listening to them. You know, so other ones, I, I remember uh, visiting Oakland jail, the county jail and talking to inmates and hearing their stories and realizing that nobody's actually asked them what they think. Other things like just being able to talk to people about what would it take to actually find cures for rare diseases? What would it take? People's stories. Like, you know, we talk about data so much. The thing that moved me more than anything else was hearing people's story and then realizing if you look at the data, the answer was duh. The signal was like super obvious, but we just hadn't worked to listen hard enough and then realize that the data is backing us. Like one problem that I've been really interested in and, and, and I think that we really need to focus on is organ donation. If you hear the story of what people go through who have renal failure and are on dialysis and you're like, why are we not investing in better organ transplants when we have organs available, we have the logistics, we have the matching algorithms, we have so much more, as well as creating a path for, for uh, development of artificial organs, we'd save not only $10 billion a year, but we'd also massively improve the quality of life for people. It's like problems like that that are like, these are no brainers in a society as powerful as the one we live in. We just have to choose to decide to put our force and our energy behind it. DJ, that brings up an interesting point. I mean, given your remit, how did you pick and choose, you know, where to spend time and effort? Because so many, so much access to so much data so many potentially uh, life impacting, you know, projects across, you know, the entire country. Um, and th that must have been daunting. Uh, it is at first and, and you can t massively get overwhelmed. But like one of the things I think that is important in all these things is you have to remember what your mission is. And it starts with the definition of mission. And I think a lot of times in the in industry, we forget that mission often is is really well defined in other areas. Government, every agency, every organization that has mission. And that mission is your true north of what you are trying to do. And in that case, you know, the mission statement for the U.S. chief data scientist was very carefully architected, not, not just by me, but by, by President Obama, um, Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, um, the science advisor, John Holdren, all the components, uh, Valerie Jarrett, everybody. And that because part of the idea was like, we want this to continue. And, and that, that mission statement, the, the shorter version of it, there's a lot, much longer one, but the short version is to responsibly unleash the power of data to benefit all Americans. And, and the words that were very specifically chosen in there is the word responsibly unleash. And 
to make sure it benefits all Americans, not some, all. And then when you start with that, you kind of ask, well, what could we do? What would this look like? And you realize like, well, what would it take to do it? The chief data scientist, no one person can just do this. You, you need the building. You need the presidency to actually make change happen because the presidency with the legislature, with you need those components of government to come together. So the way we've realized it was, number one, needs to start with a presidential priority. It has to be something that aligns with what the president's interests are his or her approach to things, how this aligns with the other portfolio of, of, of things that are being worked on by the building. Two is it's got to impact at least $1 trillion of spend. So $1 trillion of spend or ha impacts 50% of the population or helps a population that has no recourse. And when you start looking at that, you kind of go, well, what were the kind of key problems? Well, Healthcare is one of those problems. Criminal justice reform is one of those problems. Uh, but you can also get to problems that are what people might think are inane, but are massive needle movers. Things like, why does t like how, how do you ensure that the transgender population are well counted in the census? What does it mean for when a transgender person goes through uh, you know, TSA screening and the, the machine just says, you know, male, female, like when, and, and sets them aside for a, a screening that is, is humiliating. We have the machine learning. We have artificial intelligence. Like, why can't we do stuff like that to give a, it's not only better security, but dignity to people. The, like there are little wins that can turn out to be big lever arms when you bring government to bear to this. And so, and then there's a whole nother thing is that many things in government is the old adage is never let a crisis go to waste. When something shows up, go for it. One of the ones, unfortunately, that we called for f during the Obama administration that is still a debate and still has not taken enough action was we were watching a Ebola unfold. And in that process, we said, hey, number one, we don't have the data structures and systems in place to do this. Two... We need better modeling. Three, we need to get the infrastructure in place so that we can rapidly respond and develop and iterate knowing that we're interacting with a pathogen that is going to evolve, an asymmetric actor, if you will. Well, here we are again. We're on wave three. Wave one, we warned about this. Wave two, at least Congress has set aside allocations for a national disease forecasting center. But we still are questioning whether the data is. We don't have the logistics to move things around. And uh, President Obama's highlighted this. And we need the collective action to happen. So stuff is happening, but we, it takes all of us to do this. And one thing I'd love to talk about is like what data scientists and what this community fundamentally did and during that beginning response of COVID, because it's it's so powerful and it shows what a force of nature the data science community actually is. Yeah, DJ, I was actually just about to ask about this. I mean, you had a big role um, and data related to the COVID-19 response there in California. So, yeah, we'd love to have you walk us through some of that. Yeah. So March 14th, and this is in Michael Lewis's new book, Premonition, which discloses a bunch of this. But March 14th, an, a, a small crew of us were asked by uh, California Governor Newsom's uh, team to come up to Sacramento and try to help out. These are early days. This is a time where there were just a few deaths. You know, we had information from the cruise ships. Um, we barely had data out of Italy we knew some data out of uh, out of Wuhan, but it was still you know hard to tell. We had some signal starting in New York, so we didn't really didn't have much. But a number of us just dropped everything and went up to Sacramento. And it's not like we we just got up there and we're like we're here. That, no, we we started in the back offices of the California Department of Technology to try to figure out where we could help. And one of the things that we quickly realized is there weren't any models. Um, well, there actually was a model. That model was built in spread, a spreadsheet, but there was nothing really that was useful from a policy's perspective for California. And 
So we put a team together, some of the people on that team. And once again, this is a team effort is, you know, we had Charity Dean, who we found uh, in the California Department of Public Health. We had Mike Wilkinson, who was a former secretary of health in California, who was able to bring us in. Kit Roldofa, who is well known running the data science social good program at, at Carnegie Mellon and was at Devoted Health with me and, and also part of the Obama administration. Sam Shaw, Josh Wills, all these people who, who kind of cared to free us, um, all these people who said, yeah, we'll help out. And we put this team together and we realized, well, first, we need a model. Two, we need data. So in the model process, Sam, uh, Kit, and Josh with uh, Justin Lesseter's group out of, um, uh, out of John Hopkins rebuilt a model in lightning speed. Lightning speed. And the reason we chose their model is it had this idea of being able to show transport across California, like what happens between people who move between L.A. and Sacramento and, and things like that. Otherwise, a lot of the models think of it as all homogeneous. There's not enough heterogeneity or movement in there. And we needed to be able to act at a county level because that's how our government is designed here in California. So they put it together, but that turned out not to be to, to, what the thing that showed us was if we do not act now and we were in close contact with our colleagues in New York and starting to talk to people in the, in, in Italy was we have one goal is to keep our healthcare system up. And the reason it was so necessary to bring the state into to stay at home orders and be able to do a hard shutdown was to give ourselves a chance to catch up. Remember, not enough masks. Not enough reagents even to do PCR testing outside of academic institutions. We didn't have enough IV. We, we barely had enough ventilators. We weren't sure if we, how many ventilators we need. All of that collectively, we had to get together. On this other side, groups like Ryan Pachavram with Alexis... Uh, Madrigal. Madrigal, thank you. Like The whole, the whole COVID tr uh, tracking project stood up. And they got this unbelievable amount of people together who are then processing data, collecting it, finding ways to actually do it faster than anybody is doing it. And it turns out the White House is using them to get an assessment of what's going on. Then there's a whole other side. We have every data scientist that's out there is like thinking, how can I use the data? We created a whole nother team run by Kara DeFrias with a number of great people in the state um, to create an insights deck. Every night they created, they would crawl through all the data they could, geo data that was privacy, you know, preserving all this stuff to figure out what insights could we get? Where were people traveling? What things were we hearing from different hospitals to just create insights about what we knew? And it was like a data scientist dream of like, everyone was like, Hey, I got some data. Could it help you? Where could we put testing centers? Where could we do all these things? And suddenly the goal was every night, we are supposed to be ridiculously smarter than we were the day before. And let's use data to do that. And that allowed us to create this flywheel of execution. The amount of hours and the amount of people that came to bear from this proved that there is a new model at hand. And this proved to me, and I hope it is proved to society, the power and the importance of data scientists. Because with them, when you have that crew, he, she, they, that crew fundamentally is a new kind of first responder. It is a new form of people that help you do the right thing at the right time, make the right decisions, help identify those that are not getting the help, do journalistic augment journalistic activities to be able to share the important stories, to get the message out, and also fundamentally navigate through a pandemic. And the data scientists are still doing this. And it's one of the stories that I think is not getting enough attention is how much this community has done and continues to do. And my hope is, is that state governments, cities, the federal government double down on this to make sure that groups and data scientists are being highly leveraged to help us navigate to the end of this and get ready for future pandemics. So I love this idea, DJ, of, of first responders. I mean, I think it's, uh, it's beautiful um, and, uh, and it seems to fit very, very well. 
at the same time, I think for, you know, uh, the audience here, you know, you were working with this world-class team on the world's most important problem. And that's a special, uh, that's a special environment. I wonder if you can share from that any lessons that are translatable to the day-to-day work that we all do when we're not in crisis. Um, because having the crack team, you know, doing special ops is different than having the troops. So yeah. talk to me about that. Yeah. The first thing that comes to mind is people, I think, ask in like, why, why am I able to get stuff done? And, and people think like, oh, I get it done because I come from a place of privilege. And that is true. I come from a place of privilege, but the thing that the question is, because I have a title, I have, you know, a track record. But the question is, how do you get here? And I think the honest first thing about day to day is how can you help somebody else? How can you add some value? The reason I believe people pick up my call is because I have worked hard to try to help them on something and try to add value to something that's theirs and may not be the thing of mine, but it just adds value to them. So that when I need something or I, and I am able to ask for help, people not only feel an obligation, but also see that it aligns with something that they are passionate about and that will deliver material outcomes. So, so I think the, the thing is, is like anybody who's in your regular day to day work, what's one thing you could do? that might help somebody else in your organization or somewhere else that you don't have to do. But if you did it, would just be fun and teach you new things, be able to get you to do something else. There, there's, you don't have to have the title. You don't have to, I mean, you know this in Trifacta, you see it all the time is like, you're like, man, that person, they, they're, they're just that person that just adds value. Like, I don't know how they do it. They just do it. Right. It, it just happens. It's that ecosystem of, of, of things that happen. That's the first. The second is, you know, oftentimes we think of like a lot of these jobs are like, ooh, it's just like stellar and it's just amazing. And people listen. People don't realize, like, what was my job doing? Well, part of it was creating a really rudimentary data dictionary because there was like all this data was being collected. And no one was using it. It was like the greatest place where data went to die. It wasn't like how to clean it, how to do very, like I was not looking for the sexy problems. I was looking for the unsexy, most painful problems that would empower other people because no one else wanted to do that thing. So literally me and a team were going through the tables to document them. The former chief data scientist of the United States was documenting and augmenting COVID tables. Okay. If that's what it takes to get the job done, fine. But so be it. So, and some of this, and this gets directly to the trifecta missions, like somebody had to make sure the data was okay. Somebody had to go like, does this make sense? Like questioning it, asking good questions. And we went through, we had to clean it. We had to wrangle the data literally was like the conversations we've been all having for like a decade is like, we were going through that process because it was coming at us so fast. New sources were happening. And so that agility, we just had to get there. And, and it, it took us just collectively working that. The other portion I think, which is we forget is picking up the phone. Like a lot of times we just want to be like, oh, let's just work in Slack or whatever or email. But the, the, uh, the thing that was there was making human connection, figuring out like also are people tired? Do people need help? Like telling people like you got to go to sleep tonight. Like this, you're it's like, go, go grab a seat on the bench. We got you covered doing those things. And a, a large part of it was, was just trying to, to make sure we were okay. And we used to have a saying uh, in those early days, do not suffer in silence. This is going to be hard. This is going to be painful. And we are all potentially going to be exposed. But do not suffer in silence and ask for help and creating that culture. Those things turned out, like if you get that stuff right and are able to get the technology moving in there, it actually gets a lot easier. Over the various times that we've hung out, DJ, and I've seen you give talks, uh, one thing I really appreciate is always your focus on people first and then methods and everything else second. 
And so maybe you know, staying on, on that track and also bringing in that healthcare theme that we're discussing, uh, maybe let's take a moment to talk about devoted health. You know, what is it and, and what excites you about this work? Well, I think one of the things that we've seen in this country is, and COVID is exposing in a painful way, is the inequities we see in healthcare. And during my time in the Obama administration and some of it before, really interested in this problem of what would it look like to actually deliver healthcare at the right time, at the right place, better, more efficiently, and also in a more caring way? What would that look like? And the culmination of that, really working with Todd Park, Ed Park, and a whole bunch of others has, has been uh, Devoted Health, where our mission is to build a healthcare system that treats every person in there like they were family, like literally family. Because like when we think about an insurance card, right, and we take care of people who are 65 and older right now, and so like this card, when you show this card at, at, at a place in our society, this, this is a, your ticket in our society, your insurance card to getting healthcare. What is this? Is this like, uh, I got to do this? Or is this a force field that you know when you have this card, you are going to be taken care of? You are going to get good quality care. Like you, you have better outcomes as a result. And so we wanted to build a healthcare system that is that way. That means that one part, you have to be a payer, an insurance company. One part, you have to be a provider. You have to have the ability to deliver care. But you also have to have a lot more. You can do this through technology. You can do this through better human engagement, interaction, mental health, all these things. So we take care of people who are 65 and older, oftentimes very poor, very sick, in areas that a lot of people don't go. Like people think like, and, and you know, a lot of times people are like, oh, just give everyone the newfangled Bluetooth-enabled super health device. And they forget that a lot of our, our members don't have access to food. They're, they're in areas that are extraordinarily hot during the, the summer, very cold during the winter. They don't have air conditioning. They don't have heating. Like a lot of really hard life people, people who've done all the right things in life and are not getting the care they deserve. And we get in there and we intervene. We try to figure out how can we help. So like oftentimes people think, oh, it's just a tech play. It's a human play. That is augmented by technology and data to be effective by making sure, like we say, like something simple, like, wow, you're on all these medications. Can we do something to see if there's a way to bring these down? Like can we, what's called medical reconciliation. And it takes one of our physicians to get engaged to see like, and a lot of times people are just gotten way too many meds because they're seeing too many different specialists. They have no quarterback for their healthcare. And so we serve people in a number of markets now. I'm thrilled to just say that, you know, we Florida, parts of Texas, Arizona, Chicago is our most recent market, Ohio. And we're trying to, to really build a system that, that has this approach and has this ethos in there. And much of it is powered at the end of the day. What, like, what's the superpower our people have? What's a technology platform that gives us a really good comprehensive view into the customer. And it allows us to also service interesting data or opportunity at the right times to them to help improve their quality of life. What that really allows us to do is to pick up the phone fast in the time of crisis and get people to the right place or to figure out what is the right clinical interventions over the long term, like something like diabetes or bringing people into control of, of uh, other onset, uh, including mental health issues, that gets them to the right spot. That is is really awesome. It's really awesome. And I, I almost hate to change the subject, but you've done so many things that I'm going to pull you back to something you talked about earlier, which is data and criminal justice, because it's something I'm actually uh, working on and interested in as well. So you worked on this, I know, a lot in the Obama administration, um, uh, particularly data regarding policing, if I'm remembering right. And I'm wondering if you might want to tell us more about what you were trying to do there um, and share with our, our listeners some anecdotes from what you accomplished. And still doing. <laughs> Our system, and we've seen this, we still don't have basic understanding of our policing systems. How often are people stopped? What's the racial components? Or is there disparate? What about officer use of force? 
uh, and I, I also need to call out that officers have an incredibly hard job. It's a very dangerous job. You know, just Joe, near where you are, we had another officer killed in a traffic fatality the other day. And, and it's the second officer, I think, this year who's been tra- killed in a traffic fatality in the, um, the Berkeley, Oakland area. And so these are very tough jobs. And I've talked to many officers whose family are scared for their officer going out on the street. And so we need to call, highlight that. And these are a lot of good people. We also have seen the, the, the videos. We've seen the evidence you know, over and over again, that is so incredibly frustrating of what the, 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 the difference in executional law enforcement. We've seen this even as, as similarly as we've seen what's happened around the insurrection on January 6th of the way that uh, a, um, a certain class of people are treated by law enforcement versus if they were black and approaching the Capitol building. So how do we get a better sense of what's going on? Well, there's a couple different problems in there. One is just transparency and understanding what's going on. And very basic data is not collected. Turns out basic data and many things that we'd want about our society are not collected well. This includes gun violence, basic aspects of how many, uh, what type of gun violence there is, like shootings. And, and a lot of that data is been people refuse to talk about it, refused to fund it at the federal level because it's been, it's been viewed as political, unfortunately. So we can't even ask basic questions. Are we okay with certain of our laws or our protections? In the criminal justice system, and particularly in, in officer excessive use of, um, of force, there's something that we've also seen, is, which is officers are put into an untenable situation. Some of that is around mental health issues. A lot of that's around training. A bunch of it is around racial bias and different things. And one of the things that gets into this is bigger questions, which is why are we taking people who have mental health and substance abuse issues and asking our officers to deal with that? This is a different form of what governance and policing could look like. And if we got to a place where we had officers who had data where they say, yeah, this is really a mental health issue, could we get the right person here? Could we de-escalate? Could we get it into a place where we get this person over to the right thing? Because we see this person all the time. We could have better outcomes, better success. And we are seeing a movement towards that in certain pockets of the United States. And it's an early experiment, but so much more could be done. There's a whole other side that needs to be addressed here, too, which is what are the underlying conditions that get us there? Some of it is basic data around education and that we do have a pipeline from preschool to prison and we are not doing enough to actually protect our youth. And COVID and the gap of education is going to exacerbate this. There's another side, too, which is our data around evictions. Evictions is one of those sources of data that creates a downward spiral that then ends you up into a place where you may be destitute or have other conditions like mental health things that are then exacerbated. And now it puts you into a downward spiral when we could have stabilized you in a, in, in a, in a, in a way that would have been far more cost effective and safer for net society. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to bring up uh, an opportunity, I think, for folks who are listening here in, this, in the state of California. We are going to get access to much more data. We are getting access to much more data. There's uh, State Bill 1421 and follow-ons. Um, and this is particularly in the area of police misconduct. Um, and the reason this this matters is is for empowering the justice system to do what it's supposed to do, the legal system. So we've been working at Berkeley with the Innocence Project on this. And basically what goes on is that when officers are on the stand, um, that's treated as uh, evidence. It's treated as truth. Um, and if the officer is not trustworthy, you actually have to formally uh, demonstrate the, uh, uh, that they shouldn't be trusted uh, as part of that process. Um, and so now that we can get access to more of that data, we have all the data wrangling problems that, you know, we're familiar with. Officer John Smith was fired from his job in this county, but guess what? Was rehired in this other county. Um, but how do you know it's the same John Smith, right? And what the legal system, in order to get equity here, you want to make sure that the defense and the prosecution are both making their best case. 
so that juries can do their jobs and judges can do sentencing that's appropriate. So what, what is challenging is that public defenders have like very little time to prepare these cases. Um, and so all these data wrangling problems come right to the fore of how do these public defenders gather up the data, um, get it into form and figure out what they need to do in these court cases to represent their clients effectively. And it's sort of the trifecta data wrangling problem on steroids because now we're also going to have body cam data. We're going to have 911 calls, which I know you worked on when you were at the White House, DJ. Um, and so it's, it's very multimedia, um, a lot of OCR of paper documents and police notes. And um, it's, a, it's a really interesting challenge to try to make um, um, defenders sort of have the same tools and access as prosecution. And then the other thing you said, DJ, which I just thought was, was awesome, is that you have to really have empathy for the people who have devoted their lives to the prosecution side of this, to getting bad guys off the streets. It is, it is really something that we all have to take very seriously. And both sides of this equation have to be, have to be treated with, uh, with care. Um, and what we're seeing, at least in the state of California, is that um, DAs in the major cities are on board with this. So they're saying as part of this legal process, we want to get the bad cops off the street and we want to support the good cops and we want the process, the whole process to work. Um, and there are data challenges for, for all of us. And this is public data, folks. So very much in the spirit, DJ, you were talking about, about rallying around COVID. Um, if you believe that policing in America is a crisis, um, you, can, you can step up and get involved. I think it's well said and it's, it's really important work that you and the team are spearheading. Because this is another place that just shows, like, who's doing this work? We don't have outside institutions that are well-funded to do this work. It's Government doesn't have this team of data scientists that have been appointed to do this, or it's a mandate, or there's a team carved out. So that has fallen onto academia and the, the sci data scientists that are being trained, and it's the citizen scientists that are there. And some of the nonprofits are starting to get in place to be able to do this. But that collective movement and change that is happening here is being empowered by the people who, who decided that they said, I have skills. I have data skills. I have technical skills in these things. And I would like to see change in society. And they're bringing those technologies to bear, not just to get people to click ads or other things. They're bringing their skills to have a material impact in society at scale. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because that you talked about it earlier in a lot of cases, there now is data where there may have not been before. Um, and some of the conclusions are reasonably obvious when you can get the data together, but, but getting it together um, still proves to be quite challenging in most cases because it is locked up in disparate locations. It's all in all shapes and sizes. I mean, this is what we contend with every day. But um, I guess as I as I think about it, you know, a lot of what you're discussing are these really kind of foundational questions that have broad societal impact. And I remember, you know, you shared something uh, when you're uh, at the White House that. It was sort of some guiding principles um, that that you use to to follow and encourage your team to follow. And um, one of the quotes was, and we have this on our on our intranet at Trifacta, so it it, it also sort of informs us in how we think about what we do. But one of the questions was you asked was what's required to cut the time in half, and you know what needs to be done to double the impact. And I, I guess I'd love to hear maybe a an, an example of. Um, where you challenge the team on one or both of those dimensions and, and you know, sort of what, what, what the result was by just sort of stepping back and really uh, asking people to, to, to think about those things as they take on projects and as they jump into some of this foundational research. Oh, boy. Well, the, the tie-in is superb there because there's a White House card that I wrote down, and it was really my notes that I was jotting down to myself before I addressed a working group that we had brought together of police chiefs, uh, data scientists, technologists, activists, all into a room at the White House in an attempt to figure out what common ground could look like. And we realized the common ground was that people actually had no idea from one city to another how they were doing. Uh, you know, it's, it's cities both far away from one side of the country to another to things that are like on your commute. <laughs> like you just don't, they have no idea. I have no idea 
you know, like we're, we're I, I'm over here, what, I don't know, 20 miles, 30 miles from Berkeley. I have no idea how the difference between Berkeley PD is and, you know, Redwood City PD or, or SF PD. Or I, I have no idea. It's interesting that we can pull up data to compare schools and how our schools are for one region where I might choose where to live, but I can't do it on policing. Uh, but if you start to talk to people who are really uh, in the neighborhoods, they can start giving you a little bit of information. And so that part of when I was figuring out how to, to trying to get myself to ask what is the question I would ask them, that's where this came up, which was, you know, the first portion of it was, how are we going to actually get this to work for the nation? And we said, it feels so insurmountable. Like when you think about like, how are we going to move the needle for the country? It feels too big. So let's just prototype for 1x, 1x scale. Let's prototype it at 1x scale. Then let's try to see if we can build it at 10x scale. Can we get something to work at a little bit faster? And no different than like if we were a startup or a project of some kind. And then finally, okay, this is working. Let's, we figured out what works, what doesn't work. Let's engineer it for 100x scale. And as we're doing that, let's ask ourselves about the trade-offs of what would it take what are the actions? What's the sequencing that's required where we might be able to cut the timeline in half while doubling the impact? And, and this is literally a, a, a psychological hack because if you prioritize things naturally, you prioritize things that are going to have an impact linearly. If we start to prioritize the things that are going to double the impact or cut timelines in half, now we're actually on a logarithmic scale. And the things that get prioritized for those efforts are going to move to the top. And, and and it's really fascinating when you do this as an exercise because then you go, oh, that's the real needle mover. And, and to, to be clear also, I got pushed equally on this as much. I remember a meeting around the Data-Driven Justice Initiative really led by Lynn Overman and Kelly Jen with, um, with Dave Wilkinson and a number of others. Uh, in that project, when we were walking through it, Valerie Jarrett had said, great, what would it take to scale this at 100 to a hundred more counties. And I was like, Oh, we got like five. She's like, what would it take to get to a hundred? And I just realized I was like, Oh, she did it to me. <laughs> that was good. Uh, and you know, we, the, the answer came back was like, we need your help and we need the president's voice. And so before, you know, with that collective effort, we now had our ask, we knew what we was going to take. We knew what to do. And at the end of the Obama administration, this covered over 94 million Americans. And, and so that collective question unlocked collaboration across, across the White House to ask, what would it take to do this? Well, yeah, DJ, it's really great hearing about your experiences in all these different arenas. But if you don't mind, I, I'm going to zoom it out for, for a moment uh, to the field of data science sort of writ large, which, you know, as you know, is now field of study at major universities around the world. And perhaps like computer science in the early days, that's full of promise, but, but also has its critics. Um, you probably know the famous saying, like, if you have to use the word science in the name of the field, then it, then it probably isn't. <laughs> we, I don't mean to really step on that minefield, but, you know, you can go back to, I think, writings back in 2001 from Bill Cleveland, trying to define a, um, a, a vision of data science. But I don't, I really think it was with with your work and some others at the time that really popularized that, you know, in industry um, and then circled back into to university as well. Um, so given all of, of those developments, I'd really like to hear your take on the field as it stands today. You know, kind of what stands out to you as most exciting, but also what are maybe the most important growth areas um, or areas in need of attention for the field? I remember when we were debating the titles of what we were going to call ourselves and, and sort of being like data scientists, isn't that repetitive? Like, like, that doesn't make sense. And the thing I think which is there is we forget is we look at it as how we want to call ourselves, but we forget that others need to know how to interpret what we do and how we add value. And so if we said we're analysts, people lock that into a certain stereotype, a certain box. And, and, you know, if you say you're only in business intelligence, BI, they lock you into a certain box. And that's just an unf unfortunate paradigm of if somebody says, hey, you're in sales, they think of you one way. And so we have these very regimented roles. Data science, 
gave us a way of saying, well, okay, you're not quite an engineer, so you don't have to be as good at engineering and you don't have to do all these things, but you can, but you add value. And we're not exactly sure what you fully do in terms of the skill set, but you're adding value. The beauty of, I think, what we've seen as data science has evolved is as programs have come up, it has helped people say, I'm a little bit more of this. I'm a little bit more of this. Those that utilize those people in organizations are able to say, hey, this is what we need now versus later. So like oftentimes it's like, yeah, maybe we need more data engineering before we need data scientists. I mean, before it was like the data scientist was like, okay, you got to do the engineering. You got to do, you got to do everything. It was like the unicorn, right? And, and it was too much. So what I believe is actually going to happen is the title of data scientist and all the other affiliated roles, many of the titles are still yet to be defined. They haven't come up yet. Like data engineer, like remember like five years, 10 years ago, like the idea of a data engineer, that was weird. Like we were like, does that, like, that's just a data scientist. Like, who are these people? We didn't even know if they should be on a different team or they should be part of the data. Like now people are like, oh, this means this. Okay, we get it. Now there's this whole thing of like, oh, you're more in decision sciences rather than BI. You're helping us decide if decision A or B or C or D are better and how to think about these things. That collective aspect is data evolves, like data, data stewards, data, you know, the, the metadata owners, all these things are starting to realize like, okay, this adds value in a disproportionate way. And, and I think that we are now getting to this place between in, even in academia where we realized we struggled for a long time. Remember like computer science and electrical engineering was one thing. Like it was like, and if you were working in AI in the seventies, you were, they were, you were just like, what the heck? Like, you, like you kind of didn't fit. You, you were sort of like, I don't know. Are you, like, who are you kind of person? You go to this AAAI conference, weird. I don't know. The, like, people didn't know what to do with you. Like, if you were in database, people were like, okay, I understand a database. It, but that, that even took a little while before people were like, oh, yeah, we can use this. So, so I think we're getting to that place now where we're seeing, oh, you, you do data journalism. You're a data designer. You make the products come alive through the use of data. You're a data product manager. And, and what's exciting to me is the community is, is now crafting that. I think there are some intrinsic things that I, I would like to see out of our community. The most notable being that I would like us to still be a place where we have a big tent philosophy. The data science community, the, the power of us is that we have been welcoming we don't know exactly what we are, but we're excited that you may help come in and help define it with us. We're not sitting there and saying, oh, you know what, Joe, you're a class two data scientist and Jeff, you're a class three and Adam, you're a class five. And I don't know which way the numbers are supposed to go, <laughs> which is better. Which like, you know, like, like we get into that when we try to get into that specificity, I think we start to hurt ourselves. And then the other portion that I think is, is there, which I hope we preserve, is uh, people are saying we need a data science department. We may, as long as the focus of it is being interdisciplinary. Data for data's sake in itself, I think we don't have mission otherwise. But we are best when we are tightly tethered to something. And I'll, I'll be very specific about this. Why would President Obama put me in charge of the Precision Medicine Initiative? I'm not a biologist. Like you have Francis Collins who runs, like, I mean, he helped decode the human genome. But we realized is he didn't have a partner who was say, asking these questions of what would it look like if we brought all the modern technologies to bear? And so that goal was like, well, let's put a data scientist person who can kind of do a lot of weird things in charge of this to pull everyone together under one tent to ask us what we could accomplish. And, and I think if universities adopt that rather than a rigorous, like, we just need this, we'll be better off. And, and honestly, the students and anybody who's training must, if you're just doing data and you're just doing data for data sense, 
It's that I think you're not setting yourself up for success. You're also not setting yourself up for fun. <laughs> Part of it is the exploration process and being multidisciplinary gives you flexibility and permission to play across a versatile area, set of areas and honestly develop a portfolio that's more exciting and interesting. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the, the most interesting questions are interdisciplinary in nature and I mean, even in a commercial sense, when you ask questions like, well, who are my most important customers? Well, okay, how are you how are you measuring that? Right? Is it just who buys the most from you, who pays their bills on time, who costs the least amount to support? Um, you know, who has the most impact on your roadmap? All of that information, just in that one tiny example, is locked up in all kinds of different places. And so the data science community really has access to the diversity of information in ways that cross-disciplinary, cross-functionally that, that many uh, in an organization don't have and probably gets to see things in ways that because of that diversity um, that others don't. And uh, I think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful, um, you know, to be able to have that, that much broader uh, remit and, and, and purview um, than, than most, uh, than most do as they kind of execute kind of within their specific discipline. Yeah. It's well said, Adam, because think about like all the problems we've talked about today, not a single one of them has been uh, within a, just a straight vertical. Every single thing we've talked about is multidisciplinary by nature. The data wrangler project, like the way I saw it when, when Joe and Jeff, you guys, Jeffrey, you, you guys created it was this is the superpower sauce for an interdisciplinary layer. And the people, like, and it's almost like, what was Data Wrangler at the beginning? Is it a company? Is it a movement? Is it an open source technology? Is, is like, what, what, like, what are we going to create with this? What is it going to be? And you realize you're like, wait, can it be kind of a bunch of these things? Isn't it a whole slew of stuff? Mm-hmm. And that collective is honestly, when I look at it, is like, why we've all worked together, why we, we find it like important to be passionate about this mission. Cause we know that if we move the ball forward with like what trifacta is doing, what data wrangling is doing, the cleaning of data, the understanding of these problems, that's going to unlock so much more across a whole layer of other problems that people need to have, whether it's criminal justice, cancer research, rare diseases, you name it, COVID, all this stuff. Man, uh, DJ, I couldn't agree with what you closed with more. So I think we're gonna we're gonna wrap it there. That that is awesome. Thank you, thank you for joining us. Thank you for all your advice and encouragement along the way. Um, mm-hmm. Super great to have you on the podcast again, folks. We've been talking to DJ Patil. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. As always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. On behalf of Joe Hellerstein and Adam Wilson, who popped in for today's episode, and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. And I've popped in today not only for the excellent conversation with DJ Patel, but also to share some exciting news that impacts the data wrangling industry broadly. Altrix has announced the intent to acquire Trifacta. We are incredibly excited to join forces with Altrix to create the industry's leading independent cloud analytics provider. Together, we have an opportunity to enable thousands and thousands of customers globally to unlock powerful business insights with the combination of Trifacta's data engineering cloud and Altrix's analytics automation platform. The transaction is expected to close later this quarter, and we'll be sure to keep you up to date as things progress. In the meantime, please continue to enjoy the Data Wranglers podcast, and thanks for joining us.